Well, I would have been uh, about 12 or 13, I suppose, 8th grade, ninth grade, and my family took a, a family vacation out to Montana, the west side of Montana in the mountains where it's beautiful, and we stayed at this Christian retreat center that was just outside the city of Bozeman. So we're up in the mountains, and it, I mean, it's just beautiful. And, and while we're there at this retreat center where our family was staying, we hear that they'd had a couple reports of bear sightings not far from where we're staying. And as a 12 or 13-year-old kid, I had this fascination with bears. I thought they were amazing. And it had been my dream to see one in the wild. And so throughout the week, my younger brother, who he would have been, I suppose, seven or eight at the time, we would go out at night and we'd kind of stand at the edge of the woods and watch and wait to see if we could see this bear that had been coming through. And so all week, because we're brothers and this is what you do, we'd say, oh, I see the bear. And, and you'd look and you'd say, ah, I gotcha. Right? All week, this was the, kind of the game that we played. Until towards the end of the week, my brother and I were playing out in the woods away from the cabin, and someone had built this massive teepee out of, out of logs. And so we're out there playing, throwing sticks at each other, doing whatever boys do in the woods. And, and I look up, and I notice my brother's not moving. And his eyes are about as big as saucers. And he's staring past me. And I look at him, and I go, what, what's wrong with you? And he lifts his arm, and he only says one word. He says, bear. Right? And I look at him, and I laugh, and I said, you know what? You've been doing this all week. I said, you're not going to get me today. And so I go back to what I'm doing, and I look up, and he still hasn't moved. And I go, what is wrong with you? And he's still looking behind me. And so I turn around, and about 30, 40 feet away is this bear walking towards us. Now, I wanted to see a bear, but I wanted to see it on my terms, not when I'm in the woods with my little brother. Right? So he's frozen in sheer terror. So I look at this bear, like the hair stands up on the back of my neck. I start backing away, terrified. This is one of those moments, you know, where your life flashes before your eyes and you think, this is the moment that I die, right? And the last thing I'm going to see is this bear. So I back away and I grab my brother and start backing away with him. And, and I turn and look towards our cabin that's about 150 yards away. And, and I know a few things at this point. I know our cabin is much too far away. Uh, I know I can't outrun the bear. But I also know I only have to outrun my brother, right? I just have to be faster than him. I don't have to outrun the bear. So we back away a little bit, we turn towards the cabin, and I do, like if you read any books about wild animals, we do the thing you're not supposed to do. I look at my brother and I yell, run! And we take off running, uh, which it's only a miracle of God that the bear didn't chase us and, and, and maul us, but we made it back to the cabin, slammed the door shut, and as soon as that door was shut, it was this like wave of pure relief that washed over me. But that, that fear reaction that my brother and I both had in the woods was incredibly real and visceral. It's this moment where the adrenaline kicks in and your vision kind of narrows. And for me, I kicked into flight mode. Like, let's get out of here. My brother, he kicked into paralysis. paralysis. He wasn't going to move. He was stuck. I like to tell him to this day that I saved his life by rescuing him from a bear. Right? But th that fear and our response to that fear dictated our course of action. And what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about how fear affects our faith, our faith journey. Because I believe that just as, as we had a physiological response to the fear of the bear in that moment and the, and the damage that that bear might do to us, I think on our faith journey as we, as we sense God's calling and leading and guiding and directing, that often our fear dictates or plays a role in our faith journey. And so I want to look at today, how does faith affect our, our, our journey towards Christ? Because here's the reality, life with Christ, the Christian life, is about being called to follow Christ as his disciple. And this call to follow Christ as his disciple is not this call that says like, hey, you know what, come follow me, 
It'll be great. Everything will be smooth. You can just kind of follow me haphazard. No, the, the call of Jesus is to pour our lives totally and completely in him. The call of Jesus is to follow him no matter the cost. And the hard thing about this call of Jesus to follow him as his disciples is that uh, there's no guarantee of smooth sailing. Jesus doesn't say, if you come follow me, I'll make your problems disappear. Life will be peachy. It'll be great. No, in fact, when Jesus says, if you come follow me, he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says, take heart. If the world hates you, they hated me before you. Right? Jesus does not promise that following him will be smooth sailing. No, he says, come, be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, pour your life wholly and completely into me. The, the challenge then, if we're going to follow Jesus as his disciples, the challenge is to live by faith and not by fear. As we pursue him, the challenge is to live by faith and not by fear. Now, I'm not saying that when you become a Christian that it's wrong to ever be afraid again. That's not what I'm saying. There's going to be moments where we experience fear. What I'm saying is that the challenge is to not let fear in the midst of our faith journey become the thing that we live according to. How do we live and walk by faith? And so this morning as we kind of flesh this out and as we look at how fear can affect our faith journey, I want to read the account of the disciples in Matthew chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the screens for you. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was, already alone. He was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they had landed at Genezareth. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. So right before this, Jesus had been teaching all day, and the, the massive crowd that he was teaching to had, had no food, and so Jesus had taken five loaves and two fish, and he feeds over 5,000 people. After Jesus gets done teaching this massive crowd and after he feeds them from five loaves and two fish, does this miraculous thing, he tells the disciples, he says, hey, I want you to get on this boat. I want you to go across the lake and, and just wait for me. I'll be there. And I love this. Jesus goes by himself uh, up on a mountainside to pray alone. E even Jesus needed time alone. I love that. You see his humanity here. So Jesus takes this moment to go and to connect with his father and he sends the disciples out across the lake on this boat. And I know this isn't a first century fishing vessel. They weren't in a canoe, but for today, it'll help get the visual, right? So the disciples, are, they're in this boat, and, and, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was known to have storms that would blow up without warning or without notice. 
And so the disciples, they're in this boat and they're, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And, and we know that by the fourth watch of the night, it says they're a considerable distance from land. Now, the fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. This is a long, long boat ride that I'm sure they just wanted to be over, right? And the wind and the waves are working against them when we can imagine that they're rowing and fighting and they're trying to get to the other side of the lake. And we know that they're a little bit rattled because Jesus goes out to meet them and Jesus comes walking across the water. And when they see him, they don't say, oh, hey, Jesus. When they, when they see him, they're terrified. And they cry out in fear, it's a ghost. And, and then I, I kind of imagine, uh, you know, they kind of look to Peter. Peter, for whatever reason, kind of seems to be the spokesman of the disciples. And, and Jesus says, hey, it's me. Take courage. Don't be afraid. And I kind of imagine them saying, Peter, you say something. Peter, say something. You know, and I, Peter kind of stands up and maybe looks, and I kind of imagine his voice a little shaky, and he goes, uh, Jesus, if that's you, uh, t- tell me to walk to you. And I think Peter's maybe thinking, well, Jesus isn't going to call me to get out of the boat. It's not safe. And I think Jesus calls his bluff and he says, Peter, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he steps on the, on, on the water. And I kind of imagine it like walking on jello or a waterbed. You know, what, what must that feel like? And, and Peter begins to walk towards Jesus, but it says he gets his eyes on the wind and the waves and, and he begins to sink and he cries out in fear. And we see the disciples at this place in their journey where they are overwhelmed by fear. And I think that just like the disciples, that you and I, we encounter storms in life. We encounter seasons or places of adversity. And I think we often have a fear response not unlike that of the disciples. And so I want to look at four ways as we look at their example, four ways that fear distorts our perspective on our faith journey, that fear distorts our perspective as we're pushing towards maturity in Jesus Christ. And one of the first ways that fear distorts our perspective is that fear can cause us to doubt God's presence. Jesus comes walking out to the disciples, and when they see him, they, they don't recognize him. And now we could say, well, yeah, I mean, who, they've never seen someone walk on the water, so let's, let's give them some grace. But what I love about this is that in the midst of their storm, in the midst of the place of adversity, Jesus meets them in the midst of their storm. And, and I, I believe that Jesus does the same for us. In the midst of the seasons of adversity in life, Jesus will meet you in the midst of that storm, and Jesus will provide for you. But I think Jesus often shows up in ways that we don't expect. Jesus often shows up in ways that exceed our expectations. And I think often, just like the disciples, we, we don't expect Jesus to show up. And we, we can't imagine how Jesus is going to reveal himself. And so sometimes I think we, we just simply doubt his presence altogether. I think a lot of times we assume that the presence of a storm equals the absence of God. If God were here, why wouldn't he just take care of the storm? Why wouldn't he just immediately calm the wind and the waves and take me out of this situation? But I I don't believe that the presence of a storm equals the absence of God, but I think we're tempted to ask all sorts of questions and to doubt God's presence. I think the second way that fear distorts our perspective is that we often forget about God's past faithfulness. I mean, right before this, right before they got in the boat, the disciples watched Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. One little boy had a snack that he brought with him, and Jesus used that little snack to feed over 5,000 people. But in this moment, when the storm blows into their life, when they encounter this place of adversity, they don't remember the times in the past when they've seen Jesus be faithful. All they can see is the storm, this adversity that's in the present moment. 
Oh, and by the way, this is not the first time the disciples have been caught in a storm with Jesus. If you go back to Matthew chapter 8, there's another account where the disciples watched Jesus calm the wind and the waves. They've already seen that Jesus has power and control over the storm that they're in. But in this moment, they don't remember the times past when God has been faithful. All they can see is that right now, the wind and the waves are against them. And and I think we experience something very similar when we encounter a storm, when we encounter a season of adversity. Often we don't remember all of the times that God has shown faithful. All we can see is the storm and the adversity that's right in front of our face. I think the third way that fear can distort our perspective is that we doubt God's ability. In the midst of the storms or the season of adversity, we can doubt God's ability to work and to move and to act in the present situation. When Peter gets out of the boat, he walks on water for a little ways, but then he looks at the wind and the waves and he begins to doubt Jesus' ability to to provide and to keep him safe in that moment. And Peter begins to sing. He doubts Jesus' ability to be faithful and to provide for him even in the midst of the storm. The final way I think that fear can distort our perspective is that fear shifts our focus usually entirely towards our circumstances. And here's what I mean by that. Imagine uh, that this little stick person that I'm about to draw because I'm not a great artist, right? Imagine that this person represents you and I on our faith journey. I think what often happens is that when we encounter a storm like the disciples, a place of adversity, a place of struggle or trial, what happens is we encounter this obstacle and usually our perspective, what we see, is focused almost entirely on the obstacle that's right in front of us. And just like we've talked about, this, this fear sets in and it begins to distort our perspective and we go, well, there's no way that, that we can get around this and, and why did God allow this obstacle here? If, if he's moving me towards maturity, why is this here? God, God must not be present and, and, and I, I've never seen God be faithful in the past and, and, and our perspective is drawn almost entirely to the circumstances that are right in front of us. And what that does is it, make our, it makes our circumstances seem much bigger than they actually are. See, for Peter, when he steps out of the boat and when he sees the wind and the waves, suddenly the storm seems much bigger than the God that he worships because the storm is right there in front of him and his perspective is shifted right to his circumstances. And in that moment, his circumstances seem bigger than his God. And that's when he loses faith and he begins to sink in the water. But I love that Jesus reaches out and, and catches him. He, Jesus doesn't let Peter sink. The other thing that I think is, is interesting is that the disciples are in this mess to begin with because Jesus made them get in the boat. Right? They are following the direction of Jesus. If you look at verse 22, it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. If you would go back to Matthew chapter 8 and look at the other uh, episode where the disciples get caught in a storm, there it says they're following Jesus into the boat. So this is twice now that they've been following the call and the plan and the purpose of Jesus, and he's led them right into a place of adversity. He's led them right into the midst of a storm. And just like the disciples, I think it's easy for us in the midst of our faith journey, as we're following the plan and the purpose of God and we encounter that place of difficulty, it's easy for our perspective to be distorted. Now, I think there's two temptations that that face us. I think one temptation is to say, you know what, I'm just going to give up and I want to abandon this journey. For some of us, we say, this isn't worth it. I've tried following Jesus. It led me to this place of adversity. It led me to this obstacle. I'm just going to turn around and go the other way. For others of us, I think the temptation is to say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything uh, risk-taking. I'm just going to stay right here. 
I'm not going to move forward. I'm just going to stay right here. I know it's safe. I'm not going to get in that boat. I'm not going to head out on the water. And even if I do get out on the boat in the water, I'm for sure not getting out of the boat. I want to stay in the boat where it seems relatively safe. And so I think those are our two temptations, either to abandon our faith journey altogether or, or, or to say, you know what, I want to play it safe. I think the, the difference maker in all of this, the truth that we have to hold to that can change this entire thing is that God's presence brings hope in the midst of adversity. Because I think what happens as, as, our, as fear distorts our perspective, as we encounter this obstacle, as our circumstances seem bigger than our God in a place of adversity, what happens is we can come to this place where we go, this is hopeless. I, I, I doubt God's ability to do anything here. I don't even know if God is present with me in the midst of this. But the truth that we have to hold to is that Jesus meets the disciples in the midst of their storm. And I love this. He calls out to them and he says, take courage. It is I don't be afraid. And the, the language here, when Jesus says, it is I, the language here actually echoes the language of God unveiling himself to Moses in the burning bush. When God says, I am who I am. I am the personal God who is here and with you and for you. Jesus' words echo that language. And Jesus says, it is I. Don't be afraid. And it's the presence of God in the midst of adversity that can change uh, our perception totally, that can change our reaction to the, the storms that are going to uh, blow into our lives. And so the, the simple fact is we do not fear because God is present with us. I want to use Psalm 46 to demonstrate this. Psalm 46 is uh, one of my favorite psalms. And it says this. I'll just read it to you. I'm going to hit it quick. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Psalm 46 verse 1 begins by saying this. God is our refuge and strength catch this, an ever-present help in trouble. I love how the psalmist says ever-present. He doesn't say, you know, there's times that God is there and times when God is not. No, he says God is ever-present where? In trouble. He doesn't say God is only present in the good times, but he's not there in the bad times. No, the psalmist says God is ever-present in the midst of trouble. In other words, just as Jesus met the disciples in the midst of their storm, Jesus will meet you in the midst of your storm. Jesus will meet you in the midst of the season of adversity that you might be facing. As the psalmist goes on, he says, We will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And the psalmist begins to describe this picture of chaos. He says, imagine that the mountains are falling into the sea. And, and really what he's saying is, imagine that the world you know is coming apart at the seams. He says, we don't have to give way to fear, because we know that God is an ever-present help with us. The psalmist continues and he says in verse 5, God is within her. God is within the city of, of Zion. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Verse 7 says this, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Did you catch that? God is with us. And that, that verse becomes a refrain of the psalm. It's repeated in verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 6 says, nations are in upward kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. Over and over, the psalmist says, the earth might be coming apart, nations are coming and going, things seem to be in upheaval, but he says, we do not give way to fear because we know and we trust and believe that God is with us. I love, too, by the way, how the psalmist says nations are, are in uproar, but God lifts his voice and the earth melts. Because I, I think, I'll be honest, one of the places that I see us as believers giving way to fear is in the midst of the election season. 
Preacher, don't go there. I went there, it's too late. Right? We worry about, well, what happens if this candidate gets elected? Or what happens if that candidate gets elected? The whole country's going to, to pieces, and it'll all be terrible. And I watch us giving way to fear. Believers, church, listen to me. Do not give way to fear, because nations will come and go. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but God is ever present with his people. And can we trust that God is present with his people even in the midst of the storm? Even when it doesn't go the way that we anticipated or the way that we want it to, can we believe that God is present and, in fact, that he is still in control? And here's why I think this is so important. It's because I believe that the storms, the places of adversity, can actually be a formative place for us. The storms of life that we try to just get through and survive, those actually become a place where God is forming and shaping maturity in us. And I think one of the first ways that God uses storms as a formative place in our life is this. I think storms form and shape us as a people who are dependent on God. Storms form and shape us as a people who are dependent on God. So if we were to, to talk about the idea of maturity as sort of a continuum, right? We start here at immaturity and we move towards maturity. When we think about physical maturity, we talk about a move from being dependent to being independent. So as, as a child, as a baby, when I'm immature, I'm not fully grown, I'm fully dependent on my parents, but as I grow towards maturity, there's this movement towards independence. Spiritual maturity works in the opposite direction. Spiritual maturity is not about becoming a fully independent person where I don't need anyone or anything else. Spiritual maturity is about becoming a person who's fully dependent on God. Spiritual maturity is about moving from a place of independence towards a place of maturity where I am actually dependent on God. But I think for so many of us, the, the American way is all about pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and we don't need anyone else and I can be an individual and I can get success and I, I don't need anyone or anything. And sometimes what happens is we encounter this place of adversity, we encounter a storm in our life and suddenly it blows away our capability, it blows away our competence and we're standing there naked and exposed and we go, God, I need you. And so sometimes I think God is using places of adversity, the storms in our life, to form and shape us as a people who are fully dependent on him. And so that storm that blows into your life can actually be a formative place of God developing spiritual maturity in you. I think the second way that storms can be formative is that they can expand our view of who God is. Storms can actually expand our view of who God is. What's fascinating is if you go back to Matthew chapter 8, and look at where the disciples are caught in the boat before. I think it's verse 22 or 23. Jesus calms the wind and the waves, and there the disciples go, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They don't make any positive affirmation about who he is. They just say, who is he? He can command the wind and the wave. What's fascinating is that in this storm, when Jesus calms the wind and the wave, their, their response is different. They worship him, and they go, whoa, truly you are the son of God. And it's in the storms, it's in the places of trial and adversity that the disciples begin to see that Jesus is revealing himself to them precisely in and through those difficult places. That they, they find themselves in this circumstance that they don't know how to navigate and Jesus steps in and he calms the wind and the waves and they experience Jesus in a way that they never had before. And Jesus uses that storm to reveal his identity. And so when he sees that he calms the wind and the wave, the disciples, they worship him. And as a good Jew, you only worship God. And so the fact that it says that they worship Jesus, that is incredibly significant because now they're getting it and they go, whoa, 
He could command the wind and the waves. This guy, he truly is the Messiah. He truly is the Son of God. And Jesus uses that storm to reveal himself to the disciples in a bigger way that they didn't think possible. The third way I think storms can be formative is that storms provide an opportunity to experience God's grace, faithfulness, and provision. Storms provide an opportunity to experience God's grace, faithfulness, and provision because when you were in the midst of the storm, when Peter steps out of the boat, he has no option but to trust that Jesus, in his grace, will see him through that moment. And when we are brought somewhere that's beyond our capability, when we are brought somewhere that's beyond what we can do, when we encounter this storm, this place of adversity, and we go, Jesus, I don't know what to do. We have to take hope in the fact that God is ever present with us. And we have to depend on his grace, on his faithfulness, and on his provision. And I'll tell you what, for myself, I'm amazed at the lengths that I will go to to not have to depend on God. Anybody feel me on that? I want to maintain control. I want to do my own thing. So that when Jesus says, hey, get in the boat. Let's go across the lake. I go, no, 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 no. I've been there before. I'm not getting in that boat. And I try really hard to be dependent on myself. And sometimes it takes one of those storms of life where I encounter God's grace, faithfulness, and provision that I go, okay, Jesus, my only option is to depend on you. But I truly believe that the storms, the places of adversity, can become a place where God is forming and shaping us as a people of spiritual maturity and depth. So what's our response in the midst of this? I want to leave us with three things. Our response in the middle of this is is, is three simple things. First, I think it's to cultivate an awareness of God's voice and presence. To cultivate an awareness of God's voice and presence. I think this means things like being a people who are in the word, saturating your life with the words that God has spoken to his people. I think it means being a people of prayer whose lives are sensitive to the leading, guiding, and directing of the Spirit. You know, I think about as we get ready to head into this fall season and the, the series that Steve is going to jump into on unshakable faith. Have you been preparing yourself spiritually for what God might want to do in your life during this next season of time? Have you been asking God, what, what do you want to do and shape and form in me? Are you cultivating an awareness of the voice and the presence of God and an openness to his direction. The second thing I think we can do as a response is worship. I think worship is vitally important because what worship does is this. All right, go back to uh, our little man here, right? His, his perspective is focused entirely on his circumstances. What worship does is worship shifts our perspective away from our circumstances and it shifts our perspective upward towards the God who holds our circumstances in his hand. Because what happens when our perspective is locked on our circumstances is that our circumstances define our faith. So when things are good, we're good. When things are bad, we're bad. But the truth is that our faith is not defined by our circumstances. Our faith is defined by the character of the God that we worship. And so as we worship, our perspective is shifted away from our circumstances and it's shifted towards God and suddenly there's all sorts of possibilities that open up as we, as we worship God in Psalm 46 and we say, God, you are an ever-present help in trouble. Suddenly that, that situation that seems hopeless is now filled with divine possibility of what a sovereign God might be able to do. Worship is not just something that we do because it's fun. Worship is vitally important and foundational to all of the Christian life. 
Because worship continually calls our attention back to the character of the God that we serve. The final way I think we can respond is this, is to step out in faith. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we often criticize Peter. We go, oh, silly Peter, you stepped out of the boat and you saw the waves and you sank. Peter, but do you realize there's 11 guys who never got out of the boat? There are 11 other disciples who stayed firmly planted in the boat. Peter, I think this was an incredible declaration of his faith that Peter even got out of the boat. And for some of us, we've given into the temptation to say, I don't want to take any chances. I want to live my life safe and comfortably. Listen, the gospel is not about us being safe and comfortable people. The gospel is about the, the commission to go and make disciples to be about the kingdom of God. And I think we need to repent of the, the places where we've given in to safety and comfort and where God is calling you to get out of the boat. Let me ask you this question. Will you actually take the step of faith to get out of the boat? So where is God calling you this morning to step out in faith? And you, you felt the, the conviction of the Spirit saying, I want you to move in this direction. And you've said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. But you know that there's a place in your life that you need to take a step of faith to trust that God will be present with you even as he calls you. So where is that for you this morning? That God is saying, I want you to take a step of bold faith. And you've been holding back. I pray this morning that this becomes a place in your life where you declare, okay, God, I'm going to go all in. You've called me a disciple. I want to be a disciple fully. I want to take that step to the place that you're calling me. And I love today that we're going to take communion because as I think about how to respond and as I tell you to step out in faith, here's what we could say is, okay, I just have to muster up the courage and take that step of faith. But that's not what I'm saying. This morning as we take communion, I want you to think about that place in your life where God has called you to step out in faith. And what I don't want you to say is say, okay, God, I'm going to try real hard to be courageous. What I want us to do is to acknowledge our fear before God. To say, God, I am terrified. I don't know how to step out. I know you're calling me to do this. I don't know how to do it. And this morning as we take communion, I want you to pray about that place that God is calling you to step out. And I want you to pray, God, would you give me the grace to boldly step into this job change? Would you give me the boldness to step into this relationship or out of this relationship that you're calling me to? God, would you give me the boldness to step into this place of service that I know you're calling me to? Would you give me the grace to do that? Because I'll be honest, I can't muster up enough courage to do it on my own because that's not even where God wants us to be. I think it's about falling at our feet this morning and saying, God, I, I don't have it. I give way to fear all too often but would you give me the grace to take the step that you're calling me to take? Because communion is this beautiful image of when we, we were broken and in sin, Jesus was present with us and died the death that was meant for us.